thing. Well, we are in a series called Common Ground, and it's a, a lot of ground that we have covered, a lot of topics in terms of racial reconciliation, social justice, and a variety of other uh, topics that can be very challenging. Yet the commonness of what we have in Christ unites us together, so we respond as Jesus would respond. And today is certainly no exception, and uh, we're glad to have Dr. Sean McDowell, who is with us. Uh, uh, he is, uh, teaches over at Biola University in the Talbot area, every apologetics, defending our faith, and so we are so glad to have him with us. Uh, he has a wife. In fact, his wife is here with us uh, uh, this hour, so it's good to have her, and has three children as well. Uh, but most important to me, he is the brother of Kelly Wells, but most important to me, he is the uncle of Jocelyn Wells. And so we're glad to have the whole extended family connected here at Calvary Church. And uh, Sean is going to bring a powerful talk for us to help us to understand the whole area of marriage. It's been redefined, and we have gay friends. We want to know how to respond to them as well. You're going to be blessed by what you're about to hear. So I'd like to pray for Sean as he comes up, and I also want to pray for our missionary of the week, Bev Staley. Uh, Bev is hearing impaired, and uh, she has a ministry uh, to those who have a variety of disabilities. We're certainly glad for Amber, and she can spell out her name, Amber, who's uh, sharing with us in ministry of the hearing impaired, and we're excited for what God is going to continue to do as we seek the Lord. So let me pray for us, and I'm going to invite Sean to come on up here. Father God, we thank you for the good work that you have performed through Jesus Christ into each of our lives. God, we're grateful for the privilege to represent you, to serve you, to honor you through a ministry that is 85 years old. And Father, as Sean comes up, I pray that we have open hearts and open minds to receive the truth, to respond in ways that are Christ-like, and Father, to be able to love those that you love the way you love them. And we thank you for this work and for Bev as she continues to reach out to a segment of our population that needs Jesus as well. Father, thank you for her good heart and her skills and gifts used in that cause. And so we commit it all to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's welcome Sean as he is already up here. There he is. Thanks, Dave. I appreciate it. Thank you, Pastor Dave. And just for the record, I don't think you look 85. I would have thought not, certainly not a day over 84. So uh, I got your back. Hey, about two years ago, I heard about this national conference that was launching a movement in Washington, D.C. called the Reformation Project. How many of you are familiar with the Reformation Project? Not the Reformation 500 years ago, Reformation Project. Okay, a handful of you. It was started by a 26-year-old Harvard dropout by the name of Matthew Vines. Went to Harvard, didn't get the help he needed when he really came to grips with the same-sex attraction. Left Harvard, went home, lived with his parents two years, and for that time read everything he could get his hands on related to marriage and sexuality and the Bible. After studying it, he came to the conclusion that the Bible is actually in favor of same-sex sexual relationships if they're monogamous, faithful, and loving. Wrote a book called God and the Gay Christian. In fact, has kind of become the poster boy, so to speak, for the gay Christian movement. Was launching this national, really, movement with the first conference in D.C. And I thought, I need to go check this out. So I called up a friend of mine. We went not to hold signs and picket outside. I have friends in the leadership and others who went there. I really wanted to find out what this was about, kind of from the inside, and see what they were trying to do for the church. And the goal was we got there. It was like any other evangelical conference that you've been to. 
There was worship, there was teaching, there was coffee and donuts, there was stand and greet time, but obviously the content was very, very different. They spent three days training about 400 people who were there to understand and overturn all the arguments made about traditional marriage and sexuality. And then to send people back to their churches and families and homes to have these conversations to reform the church from the inside out. Well, we went to the first session. When it was done, they said, hey, turn your name tag over. And on the back, we have a number for each of you. You've been assigned to go to a classroom. You're going to go practice these talking points. I thought, well, I didn't sign up for this, but this will be interesting. So I went to the classroom they assigned me to, and there's a lady kind of up at the whiteboard. And imagine like two rows of chairs, maybe 15 or 20 people facing the front. She goes to the front, she says this. She says, we're going to practice like they've told us to, but before doing so, I think it'd be great if we went around the room and each of you shared why you're here at this conference and why you're so passionate about this movement. I definitely didn't sign up for that. What would you say if you were in that situation? Well, before, fortunately, I was about 75% of the way through, so I had time, number one, to think what's the right thing to say, and number two, to pray for wisdom. Before it came to me, I'll tell you, it was clear I was the only one in the room who held the view of marriage and sexuality that's been in the church for 2,000 years. Everybody else adopted the revisionist view, but I can tell you this, I disagreed with them, but the stories were heartbreaking. People shared stories. I came out with my parents and was told I'm not welcome here and kicked out of my home. I came out and I told my pastor, a youth pastor, refused to help me, kicked me out of the church. I mean, these difficult situations that broke my heart. They finally came to me and I said, hi, my name is Sean McDowell and I'm a professor at Biola University. At this point, about half of them turned and looked at me like, who let this guy in the room? I said, but I want to read you something. You see, they had passed out these worship packets to everybody at the conference. And the front of the worship packet said this, you are welcome here. You are loved and accepted here. No matter where you've been on your journey, you belong here. I read it to him and I said, does this apply to me? And what did they have to say? Nope, you're a bigot. No, they didn't say that. They graciously welcomed me, and I said, look, I'm not here to rain on anybody's party. I know your leadership. I'm actually here to listen and learn and have conversations. I want to know what this is about. I said, you and I actually have a lot in common. We believe what the Bible says about this matters. We believe that what Jesus says about marriage and sexuality matters. We also agree the church hasn't always gotten this right, but we got to get this issue right. I said, you know, the standard narrative is that people like me, who hold the traditional view, are bigoted, hateful, and homophobic and intolerant. I just want you to know that's not always true. And I love and care about each one of you in this room. Friends, I share that because I'm guessing that you're like me. You found yourself in this situation you didn't expect. Family member, with a friend, at work, in your neighborhood, kids' sporting events, where all of a sudden you want to be faithful to what Scripture teaches, and you know it's true. But you don't want to be a bigot. You want to be kind. You want to be gracious. You want to be loving towards people. I've never felt such tension in my life than in the past two to five years on this issue of grace and truth. And the question is, how do we proceed in light of rapid changes taking place in our culture? What do we do? 
Well, one response is to give up. I wrote a book on this with my friend John Stone Street, who's the president of the Colson Center. And he was talking with a youth pastor about our book. And the and youth pastor goes, look, I'm not even talking about the subject anymore. He goes, we've lost. It's over. And I get that sense from a lot of Christians, almost a sense of despair where we're at culturally. The values we once loved, just as David Kinnaman said recently, if you're a Christian, you used to like apple pie, good baseball teams like the Red Sox and the Dodgers. And you're a Christian. Now, if you're a Christian, you think the Bible's true, you're bigoted, hateful, homophobic, and Talibanic, as one activist personally called me. In fact, in David Kinnaman's research, as you heard a few weeks ago, you're an extremist if you think marriage is between one man and one woman for life. One response is to just kind of give up and go, God, just forget this in despair. But can I tell you, as Christians, that is not an option. First off, it's not close in our culture to what we're seeing happening in the Middle East. In the history of the world, we still have remarkable freedoms. We can't forget that. But second, Jesus didn't climb back into the grave after the same-sex marriage ruling. It didn't catch him by surprise. In fact, my experience when I look at Scripture is when things seem to be the darkest or getting darker, that can be when God is working his greatest good. What I found is this. I think our culture is changing radically. Things that used to be common sense and obvious are no longer, (coughs) excuse me, are no longer accepted and believed by this younger culture. I sent out a tweet about how kids need a mom and a dad, and this guy responded back to me. He goes, how arbitrary and hateful. I'm like, oh my goodness. Up until five minutes ago, historically speaking, that was obvious. Now it's hateful? things are changing. The question is, are we going to speak truth and stand by truth with courage, but do it with gentleness and not out of a spirit to win an argument, but out of love? Because you know what? Despite what we hear, it's actually the loving thing to speak truth. It takes courage, and there's a time and place, but it's the loving thing to speak truth. Maybe you've heard people push back and say, yes, but we are on the wrong, Christians are on the wrong side of what? Okay, this is the participatory part of the program. (laughs) Christians are on the wrong side of of history, right? We're on the wrong side of history, wrong side of slavery, wrong side of racism. You're on the wrong side of this. You better change your views or you're going to get left behind. Here's what I know. In the first few centuries of the church in ancient Rome, There was far more sexual perversion and license than we see in our culture today. Doesn't even compare what was done publicly. And you know what? When Christianity came on the scene and said sex is to be reserved between one man and one woman in a committed relationship for life for the sake of the culture and the sake of kids, that was liberating to the Roman culture. Friends, you are always on the right side of history (laughs) if you embrace the worldview that Jesus and Paul and the prophets taught. We are called to be faithful and leave the results up to God. So how how do we do this? One thing I found is I I like to go to churches 
and conferences and schools and do this atheist role play. I put on glasses, become an atheist, and I challenge people in the audience to defend their faith. So I've done this a few times with same-sex marriage. I was at a great Christian school, put on glasses, started to argue for this revisionist view. Two minutes into it, a, a girl who's a senior, been in the church her whole life, raised her hand. She goes, Mr. McDowell, I really want to defend natural marriage, but I don't have a clue how to do it. In my experience, that's most young people today. Let's look biblically, and then we'll look non-biblically. What do we see about the scriptures? So if you have your Bibles, open up with me to Genesis chapter 1, all right? And if you can't find Genesis chapter 1, you can't probably find anything in the Bible. Genesis chapter 1. We'll start, uh, we'll just look at verse 26, all right? Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Genesis 1, 27, a passage you're certainly familiar with, all right? Genesis 1, 27, it says this. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female, 28. God blessed them and said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. So what do we see in the first chapter of Genesis? Number one, God made them male and female, and both are in the image of God. Don't miss how radical this was. In the history of other cultures, women were lower. The Bible starts off by saying males and females equal image bearers of God. Radical claim to be made. So we get instantly in Genesis chapter 1, humans male and female, and we're given the command to multiply and fill the earth. By the way, I teach students and they complain about a lot of God's commands. I have never heard someone complain about this one, just for the record. Flip over to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse uh, 24. Genesis 2, 24. It says, This is why a man leaves his father and mother and holds fast to or bonds with his wife and they shall become one flesh. Notice a pattern here. It says, this is why a man shall leave his father and mother, bonds or cleaves with his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, biblically speaking, one flesh, it has a holistic sense that you become one in every way. One physically, financially, emotionally, spiritually, relationally. This is a oneness that emerges out of two individuals. So notice the pattern of what Scripture is saying. Genesis 1, God makes them male and female, says multiply and fill the earth. Genesis 2 says what? Man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, they shall become one, and the implication is they'll become like the household that they came from. So right away we see a pattern that the household is not a man and three women, it's one man and it's one woman. They become one flesh, and that relationship is oriented towards family or having kids. So when that man leaves the household, he bonds with his wife, will create a new household that's also oriented towards children, amongst other things. You see the pattern in the second chapter in Genesis? Marriage is gendered. It's permanent. It says he bonds to his wife. This is meant to be permanent. And one of the things is to populate the earth. 
That's Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Now, shortly before the Obergefell-Hodges ruling, which is the same-sex marriage ruling of June before last, maybe 15, 16 months ago, we had a meeting at Biola. Frank Sodtak, the radio show host, was there, some local pastors. Matthew Vines was there, and we were talking about how is the church going to respond with the same-sex marriage ruling that was coming down. And I asked Matthew a question I thought was interesting. I said, are you telling us that to be loving towards the LGBT community, conservatives, we have to change our position? Or can we hold on to traditional theology and still be loving? You know what he said? He essentially said, unless you change your theology, you can't be loving. That's a powerful thing to say. Then we started walking through the scriptures And I point out, I said, look, biblically, marriage is always one man and one woman. People in the Bible didn't follow it, but that was the pattern that was set out. And I said, stop and think about this. What does one flesh mean? Well, look, think about yourself as an individual, whether male or female. You can complete every biological function as an individual. Respiration, right? Digestion, walking, whatever function that is, except for one which is what? Reproduction. That's right. It's as if males and females have been designed with each other in mind, and you have complete whole functions for every biological process except reproduction, and when the two come together, they become one flesh. What's true spiritually, we can also see biologically. You might be thinking, ah, this is the Old Testament, doesn't apply anymore. Well, turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, if you can't find it, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Matthew. I'm glad three of you thought that was funny. (laughs) Matthew chapter 19. Now, Jesus is asked about divorce. He was not asked about same-sex marriage because it was not an issue. And from the far left to the far right, there has been unanimous agreement within the church about the nature of marriage and sexuality. Again, haven't followed it, but the teachings, there was agreement. Matthew 19, verse 3, it says, Some Pharisees approached Jesus to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for man to divorce his wife on any grounds? Here's what Jesus says. Haven't you read... Notice what Jesus does. He's appealing back to Genesis, the creation account, as if it's still normative in his day. Haven't you read? Aren't you aware? Then he says this, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female. Now, which chapter of Genesis does Jesus quote? Genesis chapter, Genesis chapter 1. And then it says, Uh, And he also said, verse 5, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now what did he just quote? Genesis chapter 2. Is that interesting that Jesus strings together Genesis 1 and Genesis 2? Now if you're asked if the Bible allows divorce, which of these two is the only one you need? Genesis 1 or Genesis 2? Which is the only one you need? You don't need both. Which do you need? Genesis chapter 2, that's right. It says, a man shall leave his father and mother, the two shall become one. Jesus says, let not man separate what God has brought together. All he needs is Genesis 2. So why did Jesus bring in Genesis chapter 1? 
It's as if he's saying marriage is a gendered institution, one man and one woman. Now, why is this important? Because Jesus still has some capital in our culture. I don't know how long it's going to last, but most people still want Jesus on their side. So oftentimes in conversation, I've said, look, do you think Jesus is a good moral example we should follow? The vast majority of people say yes. I'll say that if Jesus, who has had more positive moral teaching on the history of the world than anybody who's ever lived, held this view on marriage, how come if I hold his same view, I'm all of a sudden bigoted? Playing the Jesus card is a powerful way to go. So Scripture consistently lays out, again, people don't always follow it, but Scripture lays out that God designed marriage to be between one man and one woman in a committed relationship for life. Now, you might be sitting there going, okay, we're at a church. I'm a Christian. I agree with you. How do we make a case without using the Scriptures? Well, one thing my dad has said to me that's really sunk home is he said this. He said, if, if the Bible says something, it's true. If something is biblical, it's true. And if something is true, it's biblical. So if the Bible describes marriage a certain way, when we get to the actual world, we're going to find that that's what marriage is. So let's make a case for marriage without using the Scriptures. And here's the question of how we frame it. Are you ready? Is marriage like gravity, or is marriage more like the game of monopoly? Now, in the last session, I said the game of monogamy, which was definitely a slip of my tongue. My wife is here, and I don't think that is a game, just for the record. I'm committed to it. Is it like gravity, or is it like the game of monopoly? In other words, is marriage something that's objectively fixed within the world, like gravity? You can't change it. It doesn't matter if we vote and say gravity doesn't exist. It's an objective part of the world. Or is it like the game of Monopoly where it's invented and it's made up? Now, increasingly in our culture, we hear people say this. Marriage has evolved. Therefore, I have a right to marry somebody of the same sex. But here's my question. If marriage has evolved, then it's not a fixed real thing. And if it's not a fixed real thing, then how can you have a right to it? The very case that marriage has changed and evolved undermines the idea that you have a right to it at all. So I think marriage is like gravity. In fact, here's one thing I've learned. We live in a world that is increasingly denying things that up until five minutes ago were common sense. I think of it like this. If you take a beach ball and you push it in the water, it's going to pop up. Push it down, pops up over here. Push it down there, it pops up over there. The world we live in is increasingly denying things like the existence of gender, the nature of marriage, what we mean by dignity. But the problem is, truth is going to keep popping up. And when it comes to making a case for marriage, we have to appeal to certain common sense beliefs that people simply know because they're human. So in the book, Same-Sex Marriage, John and I write this, and I think this is important. Same-sex marriage is not the root of the problem. It's the fruit of the problem. Same-sex marriage is not the root of the problem. It's the fruit of the problem. There have been ideas 
brewing in our culture for a while. And if we accept these underlying ideas, then same-sex marriage makes perfect sense. Same-sex marriage is just the most recent incarnation of the ideas that have been central to the sexual revolution for decades. So what are the ideas at the heart of the sexual revolution? Well, number one, sex is divorced from babies. Sex is not a procreative act. This is what birth control and the pill have done. It divorces the consequences, for lack of a better term, of a child from the sexual act. Second, marriage is about self-fulfillment. It's about self-fulfillment. Have you ever seen the movie The Notebook? It's all about finding this person that will fill you up. And if you fall out of love, you better move on because marriage is about you. And third, that gender distinctions are irrelevant. They don't matter. These are ideas that have been brewing in our culture for some time. So if you accept the idea that sex is not a procreative act, marriage is about self-fulfillment, and gender is irrelevant, then of course same-sex marriage makes perfect sense. In fact, you'd be a bigot to deny it if those assumptions are true. So if we're going to make a case for natural marriage, we have to do it in a way that deals with those underlying assumptions. So here's a simple three-step case that we lie out in the book. Are you ready? Three points. Number one, write this down. I don't have to write stuff down. I have photographic memory. I just don't have any film. If you didn't get that, ask somebody over 30. Are you ready? Point number one, sex makes babies. Sex makes babies. We'll come back to these. Number two, society needs babies. Number three, babies need a mom and a dad. So let's start the first one, sex makes babies. You think that's obvious? Look, one of my favorite people that writes on this issue, her name is Dr. Jennifer Robach Morse. And she used to teach at Yale in economics. Now she has an institution called the Ruth Institute. And she was having at a public university a d- debate with somebody to the far left of her on marriage and sexuality. And Dr. Morse says, of course we know that babies come from sex. Her opponent goes, no, they don't. And she goes, really? Like, that's interesting. If somebody says that's not the case, that would pique my curiosity. Like, what did I miss? She goes, really? What did I miss? She goes, no, sex don't, doesn't come from babies. Sex, uh, babies come from broken contraception. She was dead serious. Friends, because of the sexual revolution and birth control, people actually don't think sex is a procreative act. We have to remind them and point out that it's very nature of sex, whether it results in a child or not, is that it is a procreative act at its heart. That's what sex does. So number one, sex makes babies. Number two, society needs babies. Don't believe me? Just look at China right now. China is in serious trouble, as is Japan. They have an aging population and not enough babies to work and replace and support that aging population. So their 1979 policy which was a one-child policy, China has reversed this, and now they have a public marketing plan trying to talk people into having more babies. In fact, in Japan, I read an article where they have experimented with robots who can care for the elderly because they don't have enough human beings because they haven't had enough babies to replace them. 
Have you ever asked the question, why does our government get involved in marriage, but not say like my tennis partner? (laughs) Because society is interested in replacing the next generation and having a healthy generation. That's why not only does sex make babies, but society needs babies to thrive and grow. We've seen all over Europe huge demographic populations because the uh, problems, because the number of babies people are having is just reducing. Sex makes babies, society needs babies. Point number three, babies need a mom and a dad. Let me stop for a second. Please don't hear me criticizing single moms and single dads. As somebody who's been married for 16 years, and we have three great kids we love, but there's still time we want to pull our hair out. I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you do it. Single moms and single dads are my heroes. Oh my goodness. I just pray you have the support around you and the church comes around you. And I know you can do it. I've seen amazing kids come from single moms and single dads, but I also know every single mom and dad and single dad I've talked to has said, I wish they had a mom. I wish my kids had a dad. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And it's tough. Friends, if you adopt same-sex marriage, you are saying, kids don't need a mom and or a dad. That's what you're essentially saying. Now, also, don't, please don't hear me saying that gay parents can't love their kids. Of course they can. I've met plenty of gay couples who love their kids and want the best for them. I'm not going to say they can't love their kids. That'd be ridiculous. But the reality is, kids are meant to have a mom and a dad. And like pushing a beach ball under the water, I think everybody knows that. How so? Well, take the first two Supreme Court nominations that Obama put forward. He came out, was the first president, came out in favor of same-sex marriage. And if you support same-sex marriage, you're saying gender is irrelevant for the development of a child. But ironically, when he nominated his first two Supreme Court justices, Kagan and Sotomayor, they were both women. Why? You know what he said? He said women bring something different to the court. They think differently. They reason differently. To represent everybody in society, we can't just have a bunch of men. We also need some women. And he's right. But then you can't turn around and say, but when it comes to marriage, a woman's voice is irrelevant. You can't have it both ways. I think he knows, especially not having a father, the kids need a dad and kids need a mom. In fact, I was talking with a friend of mine, and you, you think of the Star Wars movie, When Darth Vader says, Luke, I am your father. Is there something about him being his father? Not to say mom is not important, but there's something about that fatherly figure we know that should play a role in the life of Luke. We know it. We know it. In fact, let me give you a little demonstration. You tell me which gendered parent I'm talking about. This parent comes home from, say, work or a trip. Kids meet this parent at the door. They're excited. This parent decides, going to throw bags down, pick up the kids, toss them into the air. This parent is going to wrestle with them on the floor, and the other parent is worried what's going to happen to these kids. You guys are laughing because you're sexist, right? No, that's not true. You know when you think about it, as parents, we tend to relate to our kids differently, and that dynamism is good for their healthy development. We see that. Look, 
You better believe I have a daughter who's nine. She's blonde. She's cute. She's really cute. And I bought a gun. (laughs) Actually, I didn't for the record. I don't have a gun. I've been tempted to buy one. Now think about it. My wife cares about my daughter, obviously, but I'm going to see things differently. Number one, I'm a little bigger. Number two, my voice is a little bit deeper. And I'm a little bit more skeptical when she turns 13 because I know exactly what every 13-year-old boy is thinking because I was one. Kids need a mom and a dad. In fact, when somebody says gender is irrelevant, let me ask you this question. Imagine you work in a business and you're creating a marketing plan. And you have a group of only men. And you have a group of men and women. And then maybe a group of only women. Is that marketing plan going to look different if you include the voice of a woman? Of course. Of course we know this. And yet when it comes to married family, we pretend like it's irrelevant and that it doesn't matter. All studies show that as a whole, yes, there's exceptions. The most healthy environment for a kid to be raised up in is with a mom and a dad in a loving relationship with a healthy relationship with those kids. That's why the government has cared about the natural family. So so what do we do? We've covered a lot of ground in like 25 minutes. We've seen the Bible lays out a consistent pattern of sexuality. We see we can make a case without the scriptures. Let me encourage you to do this. Please have these conversations with other people, but have conversations strategically. I think sometimes as Christians, we're just silent and we're afraid to talk about these things. Have conversations strategically. What do I mean by this? I was sitting getting physical therapy two weeks ago in front of all these people. And the person giving me physical therapy, we have a conversation. He goes, so what do you think about homosexuality? Just out of the blue in front of everybody. What do you do when you're about to have a conversation with somebody on abortion or racial issues or euthanasia or this topic? Here's a tactic I found helpful. If somebody says, so what do you think about same-sex marriage? I just simply say, that's a great question. Thanks for valuing what I think. Do you mind if I ask you a question before I answer? Sure. Do you consider yourself an open-minded, inclusive person who values diverse opinions? What's everybody going to say? Nope, me, I'm a bigot. No one's going to say that. And then you say, good, because I sense we might differ. I will listen to you. And in fact, if you make a better argument, I'll change my mind. I'm glad to see that you'll listen to my opinion. You start having a conversation, share what you believe. They go, what? That's hateful. You stop and go, wait a minute. You just said you're open-minded to people with a different view than yours. And if they keep trying to be a steamroller, then there's a time where you just walk away. But I found the vast majority of people, if we're kind, if we're generous and care, are willing to have these difficult conversations and listen. We as Christians need to be equipped and be willing to enter into these conversations. Second, build relationships with people with a very different worldview. I do a weekly YouTube video, like two to three minutes, and I was at a conference this summer before pass, and I met this youth pastor who had a really compelling story, and I just interviewed him three minutes. I want you to see this video, because I think what he's done here is a powerful example that we should be willing to follow. Take a look. And here with my new friend, Seth, a youth pastor in Ohio. 
And he shared a story with me about how he showed love to the LGBT club and students on his campus, and it's a story you've got to hear. So you're a youth pastor, yep. you hold the traditional view, the traditional biblical view about sexuality, and yet you became the club director for an LGBT club. How on earth did this happen? So I was working with Youth and Family Services at the school district that I was in, and helping out with everything that they were doing, and some kids came in one day and said, I need a director for a club. And I was like, okay, I can do that. I didn't really know what the club was, and I got there, and it was an LGBT club. And did they know you were a Christian? They did know I was a Christian because I was a pastor in the community. Okay, so, now what were their conversations like? What happened in the club? It, it started off with like just everybody doesn't like us, everybody hates us, uh, no one cares for us. Including um, Christians, that's how they view the it, Christians. Every, everybody, it was everyone thought that way. And then it turned to, uh, you're a Christian, you're supposed to hate us. And that started opening up conversation with those students all the time. So where, did it turn towards spiritual conversations in the LGBT club at all? It became where I could take my Bible out in a secular school uh, and open my Bible and share with the LGBT community about everything that was the Bible said about that. And we got away from what does the Bible say about homosexuality and what does it say about Jesus. Wow, so they were willing to listen because you knew you cared about them. There was a relationship there and they had spiritual interests like everybody else does. Absolutely. And they, they weren't scared of asking questions because I had already created a relationship with them beforehand. They didn't feel judged by me. They knew I cared about them. How did this change you in the process? Man, when I started, I was so um, I was so against like the LGBT community. I was just like, man, I can't stand you. I I, um, I was I was really hard in my heart, and it broke me to see that there are students struggling with a a problem of sin that they're struggling with anyways. So what happened with some of them? Didn't they come, end up coming to your youth group and becoming believers? The kids came to our youth group. Uh, four of them started coming on a regular basis, and three of them trusted in Christ. Man, praise the Lord. Friends, I wanted you to hear this, because here's an example of someone stepping outside of his comfort zone. Even though you, you held the traditional view of sexuality, you stepped out of your comfort zone and showed love to a group that really feels like Christians hate them, and in turn, three or four of them ended up trusting Christ. My encouragement is, and this is true for all of us, step outside of our comfort zone. Just show the love and grace of Christ to people. LGBT people, all people. And it's amazing how many will be will be open and respond to the gospel when you do it in love and in grace. Proud of you, buddy. Thank you so Thanks much. Thanks for coming on. You can cut that. Isn't that an amazing story? In my experience... At the heart of this issue and so many issues is hurt and brokenness and the question, will you love me? Do I belong? I think we have an amazing opportunity where we're at if we're willing to follow the biblical truth, which is the truth that actually sets people free. Build relationships, live that truth out, and when the time is right, be willing to speak truth in relationships. And I think if all of us are willing to do that, God would and will use us in remarkable, amazing ways. Amen. Pastor Dave, come on up here. Thank you, Sean. We appreciate it. It's, it's so great to know there's people out there, a younger generation or two <laughs> than me, who are still 
preaching and teaching the truth and speaks into Biola's campus and the folks that uh, God brings mm-hmm. you to around the world. And I hear a common theme. This whole series, we had Lamont Hartman that came, David Kinneman has been here, our own pastoral mm-hmm. staff, whether illegal immigrants or racial reconciliation, relationships, loving yes. relationships seems to be that common theme, common ground. I think that's right. Relationships, gentleness, kindness, and just a willingness to listen. Mm-hmm. That goes a long ways. I think in our in our culture, people are so distracted, just looking them in the eyes, listening, affirming them as human beings goes a long ways on this issue and the other ones you've talked about. It's just about any issue you can think of. That's how Jesus handled it. Even the Pharisees, those crusty old guys, (laughs) uh, he would reach out to them as loving, but with truth as well. And listen, we we know that there will be continued uh, questions and discussions about this. You're going to be out in the lobby afterwards. You have Mm -hmm. a table out there, some literature and books that uh, are available for folks. For yeah, folks. Uh, the book Same-Sex Marriage is out there, and the good part is it's short. Yes. Quick read. I know I talked fast. Everything in there and much more for yourself, for a friend, for a young person. Uh, that's back there. There's, there's some other books, but one is an apologetic study Bible for students. We got all the tough questions that students ask. And this new leather one, they're like half off, special Calvary deal. But if that helps you and you know a young person, check those out. One other thing to consider, if you've enjoyed this series and you are 16 to 22 or know somebody 16 to 22, please think about going to something called Summit. In my experience, it's the single most important thing for students to understand their worldview. It's 12 days, Colorado. We have one at Biola. I'm there for two weeks hanging out. This issue in depth, we bring in the best speakers and help students own their faith in a way that for many of them is a game changer. So come to back. I'd love to tell you a little bit more about that and shake your hand, answer some questions if you have any further ones. And then Wednesday night, there's an opportunity too. We're having in the building straight in the back, seven o'clock Wednesday night, we'll take this issue. I'm sure it raised a lot of questions for you and really talk about what do I do with family members, with friends, with these questions that come up. So we would love to have you come out Wednesday night and we're just going to have a conversation about this sensitive and yet really important issue. And Stephen Barr Paulson will be there. They're friends of Calvary Church, and they have their own ministry reaching out to people who have sexual confusion, just sort of mm-hmm. their gender identity. And so you'll, you'll be blessed by coming. It's going to be a discussion. It's not a one-way. It's a, a two-way conversation. So we encourage you to join us 7 o'clock on Wednesday evening as well. Let's thank Sean. Hey, Dave, let me say yeah. this real right. fast. There's a lot of churches. I was sitting down here, my 12-year-old son, he goes, you know what? A lot of churches wouldn't even be willing to do this. So kudos to your pastoral staff, because I think the church needs to address this. So thanks for having me. We love the concept that uh, Paul gave to us, speak the truth in love. And this is an area that is so relevant. It's so predominant, and even this election season, it's uh, on the forefront of many people's minds. We'd like to go into a time of worship and give you even an opportunity if you'd like to have someone pray with you, pray for you. We'd love to do that. We have our prayer points on either side, and as people get up and wander around, we have places to go, and they are our uh, communion stations, places to give your offering. We have the bread, the cup. They symbolize the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, and it's a way to respond and say, yes, Lord, I want to be close to you. I want to have communion with you.
with you and in confession of sins and an engagement with the person of Christ. This is one of the tangible ways that we express that along with the offering and prayer points as well. Britain's going to come up and our leadership of worship are going to help us enter into the presence of the Lord and we'd love to pray together with you as well. Let me pray for us as we do that. Father, help us as we gather now and uh, Lord, we want to commune with you. Uh, We want to know you better. We want to respond in ways that are in keeping with the character of Christ. And, Lord, maybe some of us carry some burdens and concerns as this topic was discussed in how we parent and how we think about some of these issues and maybe where our personal struggles may be. God, we want to care for every individual, no matter what their struggle or what their issue or what their concerns may be. May we, during this time of worship, have an opportunity to encounter you a fresh and new way and to be able to respond in ways that are, Father, healing, restorative, renewing. So help us in this time as we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.